0: We pray, O Lord, as we come to Your Word, that it would resonate with us, that it would show us what we need. It would show us Christ. We know that Your Word is powerful, that it never returns to You void, that it is inerrant, it's inspired, God-breathed, it is infallible, it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that we may be equipped for every good work. We pray, O Lord, that You would use Your Word toward that end. We also pray for our children. We pray that the Gospel would be planted deeply within their hearts and that they would, in Your time, come to saving faith. That it would bear a rich harvest all for the glory of Christ. Use this time, O Lord, to conform us more into His image, for His glory. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 12. We're going to be looking at John chapter 12, verses 20 to 26 today. John chapter 12, verses 20 to 26. And if you need a Bible, we do have some out in the foyer. Feel free to to grab one if you need one. Uh, but I think these days most people have it on an app. So, John chapter 12, verses 20 to 24. A recent poll study was conducted in which 4,729 Americans who attend church were asked why they go to church. Now, to give you a little bit of a spoiler, uh, the results were a little bit disturbing. Uh, one article that covered this study started the, the article by saying, quote, if American religion were traded at a stock exchange, your broker might be advising you to sell. The trend lines don't look great and haven't for quite some time. End quote. And that is entirely true. So it's not surprising that this poll was even conducted in the first place. I mean, if religion in America, Christianity in particular, if American religion is on such a, a steep decline right now, Uh, Don't we want to know why those who go to church do still go to church? Why do they still attend? We want to know, right? Uh, Now keep in mind that participants uh, were allowed to select more than one answer, but some of the more common answers included uh, 69% said, so their children will have a moral foundation. 68% said to become a better person. Ooh, that one's bad. 37% said to continue their family's religious traditions. 31% said they felt obligated to go. And 16% said they went in order to please their family, spouse, or partner. Well, okay, it's no wonder then that Christianity is on such a decline in our country. Uh, some of these I think have a, a bit of legitimacy when it comes to you know reasons for going to church but let me say that I think the best reason for somebody to go to church is simply this to see and know Jesus and his glory to see and know Jesus and His glory. James Montgomery Boyce tells uh, a story of how all the, the pulpits you know that, that he went to, that he stood behind, that he preached from over the course of many years and in many different places, he said that there was one pulpit that stood out in particular in his mind because of a sign that was located on the back where only the preacher could see it that was right there for him to see as he came up to preach. And it said this. It said, Sir... We would see Jesus, and he noted, Boyce noted, quote, "That is a good word for any preacher. I could wish that every preacher and teacher of the Word of God might have those words before him constantly as he prepares his messages and as he speaks them." End quote. Well, the words that were on that sign on the backside of the pulpit come from the text that we're going to be looking at today as we continue our study of John's Gospel. We've reached the final week of Christ's public ministry as we've come into chapter 12, Uh, so there are only days that remain until uh, the Lord will be nailed to the cross for all the world to see. And Jesus, over the course of the past chapter and a half, has proven himself to be, first of all, the Son of God by raising Lazarus from the dead, secondly, he's been hailed by the people of Jerusalem as the son of David as he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey's colt for Passover week. And in the text before us today, he's going to identify himself as a third type of son, the son of man. The title son of David connects Jesus specifically to the nation and the people of Israel since David was a famous king of Israel. But the term son of man connects him beyond just Israel. It connects him to all of humanity, Jew and Gentile, Alike Now, before we start looking at this passage here in John chapter 12, it's good for us to know where this term son of man comes from in order that we can understand what the significance of that term might be, especially uh, the significance it would have had in the mind of a Jew in the first century. Uh, It was a very significant term for them, something that they would have recognized immediately, because it's a term that's found in a prophecy from Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, which says this, Daniel writes, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion glory and a kingdom that all the peoples nations and men of every language might serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed That's really significant. There are a lot of very significant details in there that come into play in this passage in John that we're going to see today. But the fact that Jesus uses this term, Son of Man in reference to himself it was a crystal clear claim that he was the one being spoken of in Daniel and if we understand what Daniel's describing in this vision and the things that are said of this one uh, who's the son of man then we understand that Jesus by claiming to be the son of man was claiming to be none other than God incarnate God in human flesh in fact He couldn't have said it much more clearly than he did when speaking to Jews who were familiar with this vision that was recorded in Daniel chapter 7. So having entered into Jerusalem on the day which was foretold, and in the manner which was foretold, uh, we now come to an encounter that took place within Jerusalem between Jesus and some Greeks who come into town for the Passover. So, the point of the passage that we're going to be looking at today is that the way to be honored before God is to forsake the natural ways of the flesh. Elevation before God comes at the expense of enmity with the natural, selfish, self serving tendencies that we have. So, we'll start by looking at John uh, chapter 12, verses 20 to 24. John writes. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now there were many, many Greeks, Gentiles, if you will, who lived in the region of Judea, this region of Judea in the first century. And many of those Gentiles were people who had converted to Judaism. Uh, We know that the law of Moses had made provisions for Gentiles to do this. And many had in first century Israel. In fact, we know that there were large communities of Gentiles scattered throughout first century Israel. Bethsaida, which is where Philip and Andrew were from, was one of the regions that was known to have had an incredibly large Greek population. And any Greek or Gentile who had converted to Judaism was, like everybody else, required to go to Jerusalem once a year for the Passover. And that's what we see happening in our text here. Now there's a little bit of irony here. The irony is that the Pharisees, if you look at verse 19, they had just been recorded as kind of scorning or scolding or, you know, putting one another down uh, in verse 19, where they were saying to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Well, they were right on the first part. The second part, eh, we saw last time, the people were excited to see him, but for all the wrong reasons. But that's immediately followed up by the Greek Gentiles showing up asking to see Jesus right after they say the world's going after him. But we should also see that this is a reminder that God's plans will never, ever, ever be thwarted. Plan Plan B, uh, there there was no plan B for Jesus to come in and be received and and worshipped and that would be it. The plan all along was for the nations, was for atonement, was for the Jews to reject Jesus. Yes, the Jews had rejected Jesus at this point. Yes, they even had a plot in place to murder Jesus at this point. And so suddenly, the Greeks are seeking Him. Matthew tells us that a couple days later, at some point during the week, the Jewish leaders changed their minds about their plot. In Matthew 26, verse 2, Jesus tells his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man, there's that term again, is to be handed over for crucifixion. Then we continue reading in verses 3 to 5, then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court Of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. So their idea is, let's not do it this week. Let's wait until another time when there aren't so many people around who will get upset. But God is sovereign. God had decreed the day and indeed the hour that Christ would be handed over and crucified. And so it didn't matter if the religious leaders were trying to change their minds and their plans. They weren't the ones in charge. God was the one in charge. God is the one who is sovereign over all things, not man. Man plots one thing, God establishes another. Now we aren't exactly sure who these Greek people are. We aren't exactly sure what they even know about Jesus. We have no idea why they come up to Philip. Maybe because they were from Bethsaida like Philip was, and they recognized him. But they come up to him with a, a simple request that might not seem to have a whole lot of significance to us, but it was extremely significant. Their request is simply, we wish to see Jesus. Is it possible that they recognized Philip and that's why they come to him? You know, it's possible, but we don't know. For reasons that we don't know, they choose to approach Philip of all the disciples with this request. And his response seems to be one of confusion. Because if, if we're thinking, you know, and, and trying to write this out and, and making this up as we're going along, we'd be like, okay, so Philip brought them to Jesus. That's not what he does, though. Philip, instead of bringing them to see Jesus, he goes to find his brother, Andrew. And Andrew's response seems to be something like, I don't know what we should do. Why don't we go ask Jesus together? And Jesus' response may also seem somewhat confusing, because instead of saying, oh, that, that's great to hear that there are some Greeks here who want to see me bring them to me, or instead of saying, take me to, uh, to these Greeks... Jesus responds by saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And this marks a major turning point in Jesus' ministry. Because if we've been following the Gospel of John closely, we see that there's been a theme of Jesus' hour having not yet come. Multiple times, Jesus has noted, my hour has not come yet come or my time has not yet come in fact that was exactly why the authorities were unable to seize him to arrest him back in chapter 7 verse 30 which told us so they were seeking to seize him and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come and then again in chapter 8 verse 20 these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come so this theme goes all the way back to chapter 2, when Mary wanted Jesus to do something about the fact that the wine was running out, and what did he say? My time has not yet come. So this is a theme. And suddenly, now, Jesus says, my time has come. So as these Greeks now enter the story, that's what marks the turning point. The Greeks coming into the story. The question, I guess, that forces us to ask is, what's the relationship between the Greeks coming and looking for Jesus and Jesus's hour coming. Well, what we need to remember is that there's this tension that's just been getting tighter and tighter, and it's finally broken between Jesus and the religious leaders. Uh, they're now seeking to assassinate him, to, to murder him. In other words, at the time that the Jews have completed in in their hearts and in their minds their rejection of Jesus and plotting to kill Him. The Gentiles are seeking Him. this marks the first instance in which those who were Gentile by birth give us a reminder that Jesus came not only to be a Savior to the Jews, but to all the nations. James would later remind us, as the apostles in the early church came together to form really what was the first church council to determine what was necessary for Gentiles uh, to do in order to be part of the faith, James said this, he said that God first concerned Himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for His name. With this, the words of the prophets agree. That's from Acts chapter 15, verses 14 and 15. Now, we want to keep the context in mind here. The Lord Jesus has been excitedly received into the city of Jerusalem. They welcomed him by laying palm branches and garments of clothing on the road before him as he rode into the city. And the expectation that the people had was that Jesus, as Messiah, would establish a political kingdom that would free them from Roman oppression and occupation. So in the minds of those who had celebrated and and welcomed and, and received Him so excitedly, which by the way, undoubtedly also included the disciples, a glorious and triumphant earthly kingdom was about to be established in their minds. And now the Greeks are seeking Him. It must have seemed like icing on the cake in their minds. I don't know. They're very confused or they're super excited and want to make sure that Jesus has a heads up. It's one or the other. But we have to remember that God's plan has always been for the nations. For the nations. God says to Abraham, all the way back in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, he said, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That seed was a reference to who? To Jesus. Jesus to Jesus, to the Messiah, to the Redeemer. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 21, God said, Indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Listen again to that prophecy from Daniel. It says, And to Him, that is to the Son of Man, and to Him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. This was the plan all along. And so what we should understand when Jesus responds by saying the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, is that he's confirming their expectations in one sense. The kingdom is about to be established, but Jesus is quick to make sure that they see that it's not the kind of kingdom they've got in mind. It's not the kind of earthly kingdom that they have erroneously been expecting the Messiah to establish. He didn't come to establish an earthly kingdom. He came to establish a spiritual kingdom. Remember what Jesus said before Pilate when he was being tried? My kingdom is not of this world. Because if it were, I'd be sending my angels in to fight for me, right? He came to establish, establish not an earthly kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. And we're going to see that in just a moment. But for now, we need to see a couple things. First of all, again, we don't know exactly why the Greeks want to see Jesus. We aren't told. Is there a bounty on Jesus' head that the Pharisees have put out? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Maybe uh, they're coming because the whole city's just talking about Jesus. There's there's still a buzz in the air, you know, from his entry into Jerusalem and everybody's talking about him. Um, Maybe they heard about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. I mean, we just don't know why they're seeking Jesus. But there's one thing, again, that needs to stand out in our minds as we look at this. And that is that John does not tell us that they believed in Jesus. We're not told. Secondly, the second thing we should notice here is that the kingdom that Jesus came to establish would not be established in the way that earthly kingdoms are established. An earthly kingdom is established in pomp and circumstance. A big coronation ceremony with gold and all the, the most important people in the world there to, uh, to, to, to witness the coronation of a king. Jesus wants them to understand that His kingdom does not work the same way that earthly kingdoms work. Remember, in His kingdom, the first are last. The last are first. The greatest are the least. The least are the greatest. The term Son of Man is often used by Jesus in reference to the cross. Because the cross is where The Son of Man is ultimately presented before the Ancient of Days. That's what took place as Jesus was nailed to the cross. That's where He was given dominion, a kingdom, and glory as foretold in Daniel's vision. That's not what we would expect for the establishment of a kingdom. But God's kingdom works completely differently than earthly kingdoms. The cross is where we see the supreme display, the ultimate display of Christ's glory. When Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, we need to understand that His being glorified implies the display of something, uh, displaying it prominently. Richard Phillips notes in his commentary, we glorify someone's artwork by displaying it prominently. So what displays the true glory of the Son of Man? Jesus' answer is his crucifixion, end quote. The crucifixion of the Son of Man was probably not what anybody in the entire world would have had in mind when they tried to imagine how that prophecy, how that vision from Daniel chapter 7 would eventually play out, what it would look like, and yet this prophecy was fulfilled and the types and the shadows from throughout the Old Testament would all be most visibly and clearly explained and fulfilled when Jesus would be nailed to a cross. What the world and what the religious community would have seen as a vile demonstration of just barbaric brutality, what everyone would have seen as just reviling, disgusting, degrading, Jesus understood as the ultimate revelation of His glory. For the person who wants to behold the glory of God, the glory of Christ, they need look no further than Calvary. It's unclear if these Greeks were, were present to hear these words. Maybe they're off in the distance. Maybe they're there. Uh, maybe Jesus only spoke these words to His disciples. But if these Greeks wanted to see Jesus in the truest sense, they would have their chance because Jesus would be nailed to a cross in a public location where everyone could watch Him die. Jesus understood that this was the road to to him being glorified. And he illustrates it with a grain of wheat. It's almost like a, just a, a one sentence parable, saying, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So, Pretty simple to understand, I think. Just as a seed has to fall to the earth and to be buried in the soil in order to give rise to a new plant or to several new plants that will produce a great harvest, so too the Son of Man is glorified and will bear fruit through his suffering and through his death on the cross. Notice that Jesus speaks of this as a certainty, not as a possibility. It's not, it might bear fruit. The Son of Man might bear fruit down the road. That's not what He says. No, His mission was not to die and to just hope for the best. Just to hope that somebody somewhere would actually believe the gospel message and that by that He would bear some fruit. Jesus did not die to make salvation a possibility. He died to make it a certainty. A certainty for His people. He would be glorified on the cross because He is glorified in the salvation, the certain salvation of His people. And their salvation required His death. If Jesus wouldn't have died on the cross, then He wouldn't have taken the sins of His people upon Himself. If He didn't bear the sins of His people, there would be no church. There would be no Christianity there would be no salvation. There would be no hope. What Jesus is teaching here is that the salvation offered in the Gospel message is something that He alone was able to accomplish. The deaths of a hundred million very, very, very moral people wouldn't be enough to atone for one sin let alone the sin of all of those who believe savingly in Christ. Only Jesus could accomplish our redemption because Jesus was the only one who could be presented before the ancient of days, before God, and to be found acceptable and pleasing in His sight. That is to say that only Jesus lived a life in which He never once, not for one nanosecond, strayed from the will of the Father. Not once. The question is, if we understand God's holiness, if we understand how much God hates sin, the question is, how can sinful men and sinful women like us stand before God who hates sin? And the answer, there's only one. The answer is that we must be covered in God's own perfect, unblemished righteousness. If we do not have that, we cannot stand before God with a grain of hope. We are doomed without God's own righteousness covering us. And that's what Jesus alone is able to offer. For this reason, Jesus is glorified when we confess that we have no righteousness of our own. We have nothing to bring to God except sin. But we can point to the cross where Jesus bore our sin and traded it for His own perfect righteousness. The cross is foolishness to the Gentiles. The cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. But if you reject the cross for whatever reason, you also reject Jesus. And if you reject Jesus, you reject salvation. Jesus wanted his disciples to understand this. And he He seems to have wanted these Greeks to understand this as well. And he wants you to understand this, he wants me to understand this. Having died the death that you and I deserved as sinners, Jesus has reaped, and he continues to reap as his gospel goes forward, even today a great harvest of fruit through His death, all to the praise of His glorious grace. Friends, the ultimate aim of all of history is the glory of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. The aim of all of history, every second throughout history, it is all pointing toward the glory of Jesus Christ. Whether you recognize this fact or not is irrelevant. Whether you resist this fact is completely irrelevant. Whether you like this fact or not is completely irrelevant. The ultimate aim of history is the glory of Jesus Christ. That's why we have the book of Revelation, by the way. It's not given so that we can read the times. It's not given to us so that we can build a bunker to go hide in when persecution comes. It's to show us the end toward which all of history is leading. How that is all going to play out is something that people have a lot of different ideas about. They've speculated a lot on it. And people have arrived at all kinds of different conclusions about what that will look at. But what's important is not how you think it's going to play out exactly. What's important is that you are prepared for the day When, as Revelation 22, verses 3-5 to says, when there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And the way to be prepared for that day is to believe in Jesus Christ today. Today. For all of eternity, all who have done that, all who have repented and savingly believed in Jesus Christ, will dwell in the light of the glory of the one who bore our sin and shame and who clothed us, who covered us with his own perfect righteousness, thereby reconciling us to God. That's a future reality. It is a future certainty. But there's also a present application for all this that Jesus is about to get to. The present application for us is, is basically this in a nutshell. Paul summarized it nicely in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, where he said, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That's a present application. Right now, today, this is what we should be doing. Let's look at that another way. If something does not glorify God, we should reject it. We shouldn't do it. Now, this isn't only talking about our actions. It's encompassing our, our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. See, the Christian life is about following Jesus. Those who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, were saved by Christ's work on the cross. And yet, at the same time, there's another sense in which we must also take up our cross in our lives as well if we're to follow Him in faith. And that's what Jesus wants us to understand as He continues. Verses 25 and 26. He continues by saying, He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves Me, he must follow Me, and where I am, there My servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. In a chapter that is focused on the theme of devotion, remember we started out by looking at the devotion of his followers, his true followers, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, followed by the devotion of Judas to money, followed by the devotion of the people of Jerusalem to an earthly kingdom. And to a false idea of what the Messiah would be, Jesus now tells us what true and acceptable devotion unto Him looks like. Friends, what was true for Jesus is also today true for all who follow Jesus. We are not to love our own lives. See, that's, that's humanity's problem is that that is, because of sin, because of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, that is our natural disposition. All of his offspring fell in him, and we are his offspring, genetically speaking. People are, therefore, by nature, extremely selfish, extremely self-serving, egotistical, and by the way, that's antithetical to serving God. Selfishness is antithetical to serving God there's a good illustration of of humanity of humanity's selfishness and selfish natural dispositions in first samuel chapter 9 where we're introduced to saul who of course is the future king of israel he's a, a man from the tribe of benjamin who goes looking for his father's three lost donkeys and along the way his father's servant who accompanied him on this journey tells him that they were coming near to a city where they could find a man known as a man of God. And of course, that was referring to Samuel. And so Saul comes to Samuel, whom he referred to and knew to be a man of God. But he comes to Samuel not because he was seeking God, but because he was seeking his father's three lost donkeys. So to summarize, he sought out this man of God, Samuel, for purely selfish, purely self-serving reasons. He wanted to find those three donkeys more than he wanted to find God. And friends, by nature, apart from God's grace working in us, so would you. And so would I. But to follow Jesus We can't operate the way that the world operates. We can't operate the way that the flesh operates. We can't operate the way that our old selves, before we were saved, operated. To gain life in Christ, we must be willing to lose the life that we have. Which, of course, is no life at all, spiritually speaking. It's death. That's the condition that we're all born into. If you love your life in the world, and the world is working against everything that Jesus came to establish and accomplish, and you're following the ways of the world, you're going to be pulled away from Jesus. And so, we're to be called. We we, we are called to to forsake that life, that way of thinking. We're we're called to abandon the desires of the flesh and the self-serving ways of, of the flesh, because those ways will prevent a person from following Jesus with the type of devotion that he requires. Now, life is a gift, and Jesus isn't saying that we should despise or resent the fact that we were given this gift. He's not saying that we should hate this gift, nor should we hate any other good gift. All good gifts come from God's hand, and we're to steward them with, with, great, uh, with, with thanksgiving, uh, not, not with animosity toward those things. What we should see, though, is that there are two types of life that Jesus is talking about here when he says this. Uh, when he says, he who loves his life loses it, the Greek word for life there is suke. Suke, that, that's the word that we derive the word psychology from. It's also the word that we derive the word psyche from which refers to the ego. It's the part of us that thinks selfishly and is so self-serving just like the rest of the world. And Jesus is saying that we have to reject that way of thinking, that way of living, that way of operating. But then when Jesus says, uh, we'll keep it to life eternal, the word that He uses there for life is a different word, a different Greek word, zoe. Zoe, which is is spiritual life. So when you put these things together, when, when when you add them together, when you put Zoe with eternal, they're talking about eternal life, spiritual life. So what Jesus is saying is that you must forsake the worldly, selfish life in order to have eternal life, spiritual life. How do we do that? I mean, what does that even mean on a practical level? Because that sure sounds like gaining salvation by works. No, what Jesus is saying is that that's not going to work. He, he knows that, that we can't do that on our own. That's not what He's saying. Our works are dead. No, we're saved by works. Uh, we're not saved by works. We're saved for works. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His worksmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So what Jesus is doing is encouraging His followers to count the cost. He's saying, if you're going to be devoted to Me, this is what it's going to look like. What Jesus wants us to understand is while it's clear that we're saved by trusting in Him and the work that He accomplished, following Him necessarily means that there's a type of death that we too must endure. First of all, we must die to self. Every one of us, we must die to self. That's part of the Christian life. We no longer walk in the ways of the flesh. We no longer walk in the ways of the world. We no longer make ourselves and our well-being our number one priority in life. Something that, by the way, Christians around the world have been tested on in the last year. Rather, following Jesus means surrendering all those selfish ambitions, all those self-serving, all those self-preserving desires. And following after Him. Submitting our plans and our ways to Him. It means pursuing Jesus more than pursuing wealth. It means pursuing Jesus more than pursuing comfort. It means uh, pursuing Jesus more than pursuing even health. Or fame. Or pleasure. Or anything. Fill in the blank. Absolutely anything. Jesus, following Him, obeying Him, comes before anything and everything else in life. That's what it means to follow after Jesus. Are you willing to do that? Let me say this much. The natural man isn't. The natural man isn't willing to do this. In fact, the idea of pursuing Jesus above everything else in life is foolish to the natural man, which is exactly why you have pastors in Canada being arrested right now because of a virus that is 99.95% plus survivable. It's because the idea of pursuing Jesus above everything else seems really stupid in their opinion. The natural man can't understand it because it's a spiritual truth. And the natural man is unable to understand spiritual truth because he is spiritually dead. The natural man isn't willing to pursue Jesus above everything else in life. But the Christian must. In fact, the Christian will find no happiness at all in pursuing the things of the world above everything else Because it's contrary to the new nature that God has given each of us in the new birth, in regeneration. So, a Christian who's living for the things of the world or who is submitting to the desires of the flesh is going to find nothing but emptiness and frustration and misery. Why? Because we were made, we were reborn with new desires and new affections. The new heart of the new creation does not find contentment or happiness in sin and in living for self. No, the new heart yearns to please God, which involves dying to self, dying to the flesh, putting the flesh and all of its desires to death day in and day out. And that brings us to the second way that we must die. first. We must die to self, and secondly, we must die to sin. Listen to what Paul said to the Romans Romans chapter 6, verses 11 to 14. He says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Under, under the flesh, sin reigned over us. It was our master. It dictated everything that we did, everything that we said, everything that we thought. Prior to salvation, every part of our body, every part of our being was used as an instrument for sin. But what Paul's saying here. And keep in mind that he's talking to people who are already Christians. He's not talking to the unregenerate man here. Paul's saying that now that we're in Christ, instead of every part of our body being used for sin, he's saying now present every part of your bodies to God for righteousness. So, for example, we, we no longer use our tongues to lie. We no longer use our tongues to slander. Why? Because our tongue doesn't belong to sin anymore. Now our tongue belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now we use our tongues to praise the Lord and to experience fellowship with the brethren. We no longer use our hands to steal or to fight or or to, to clench a fist toward God. We now use our hands to do good works in service to God and our neighbors. We strive to glorify God in all that we do with all that we have, Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, quote, "In order to make room for the display of the divine glory in Christ Jesus and His salvation, there must come of all the glory man there must come an end of all the glory that man boasts of himself." And here is the promise that Jesus makes, verse twenty six that this path to glory for all who truly and savingly follow Him. There's a reward. That if anyone serves Him, they must follow Him. Do you serve Christ? Day in and day out? Do you serve Him? Or do you serve sin? Because you're serving one or the other. This is a question not only of faith, but it's a question of faith and obedience. J.C. Ryle says this, he says, quote, faith and obedience are the leading marks of real followers and will always be seen in true believing Christians. Secondly, Jesus promises this. He says, where I am, there my servant will be also. In other words, Jesus will be with us through this journey, enabling us to do what He requires. Enabling us to live and serve in His power. We're thereby able to experience and to walk in His presence every day. If, if we want to come to Him, if we want to see Him, it's going to be costly. It, it'll involve going to war against our natural desires and tendencies, but we won't be left on our own to do it on our power and our strength. Finally, Jesus promises this to all who follow Him. He says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The vision back in Daniel chapter 7 spoke of the nations serving the Son of Man, and here's Jesus talking about the importance of serving him. This is a call to personal, practical holiness and devotion. It might be painful. It probably will be. It will be difficult at times, but it will result in the greatest of rewards that we will be honored by God. So the question that we have to wrestle with is which would you rather have? Would you rather have the praise and the honor and the approval of man or of God? If it's the approval of God, this is the way. Jesus is telling us the way by believing in Him, and by pursuing Him above all other things in life. These Greek Gentiles came wanting to see Jesus. Do you? Do you? Then you must look to the cross where He was lifted up and where He was glorified. And you must realize that the way to be honored before God is to forsake the natural ways of the flesh. Elevation before God comes at the expense of enmity with the natural selfish tendencies that we have. So glorify God in all that you do by living a life of death to self and to sin. Dead to sin. This is what true, acceptable devotion unto Christ entails. This is what it looks like. This is what it means. This is the road that leads to life everlasting in the presence of the light of the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we confess before You that in our flesh, we would pursue the things of the world. We would obey the lusts of the flesh. But we thank You that by Your grace, You gave us a heart that yearns for You. A heart that desires to obey You. A heart that desires to pursue Christ above all things. We thank You for Your grace. Thank You for showing mercy unto us. We recognize, O Lord, that there is nothing that we could do to receive it. Nothing that we could do to earn it. Nothing that we could do to deserve it. All we deserved was Your wrath. But Your grace intervened. And You changed us. All to the glory of Christ. All to the glory of Your grace. And we thank You and we praise You for that. And we remember, O Lord, that we were bought at a high cost. A cost that we could never afford. A cost that only You could pay. And that is the shed blood of Christ for our sins. Thank You for Your grace that was poured out through Him. We pray, O Lord, that as we remember that our lives are not our own, that we would live lives that are pleasing to You. That You would give us, through Your Holy Spirit dwelling in us, not only the conviction, but the power to go to war day in and day out against the desires and the inclinations and the tendencies of our flesh. Oh God, we pray that You would help us mortify the works of the flesh in order that Christ and His work in us would be seen before all and that He would be glorified before all through that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.